Here in John Graves' book, From the Limestone Ledge, we're in the midst of a discussion, not a very high-minded one, I admit, about smokeless tobacco. In this chapter, the topic is snuff. In the next, chewing tobacco. You may not even know a dipper or chewer, but the practices were once common until not so very long ago. Are any of you old enough to remember spittoons in courtrooms and bars? We're in Chapter 15 now of From a Limestone Ledge, published by the University of Texas Press. Old snuffing anecdotes abound, but are interesting, I suppose, for the most part, only to snuffers. One that somehow has poignance for me concerns Charles Lamb's genteel but eccentric sister Mary, who, when making a round of social calls, always carried several empty snuff boxes in her reticule, and if left alone for a few minutes in a parlor, would surreptitiously load one full from her hostess's mantle box. Snuffing, in comparison to other forms of tobacco use, has a fairly immediate effect. You can get dizzy on it after abstention that is more marked than the gentle euphoria induced by chewing or dipping, but not nearly as strong as the tingle and glow of a great double lungful of cigarette smoke. It gives you the full savor of good tobacco, with or without accompanying perfume, affords an excuse to collect pretty snuff boxes and patterned dark snuffing handkerchiefs, and is on the whole a very pleasant and satisfying practice if you don't mind a bit of sneezing now and then and the upraised eyebrows of people around you. It inflicts no tar upon the system, and when performed correctly, doesn't reach your lungs, and I expect it'll be a long while before the Surgeon General or anyone else will be able to accumulate enough statistics to prove definitely that it's bad for your health, as it no doubt is. Former ages were divided on this point, some sour medicos claiming it did loathsome things to the noses of excessive users, but in general it was thought therapeutic. My own experience indicates it does help some sinus trouble, but on the other hand, intensifies hay fever. Of snuff that is taken country style, in other words, in the mouth, the wet, coarsely ground, highly popular sort often called snooze has been classified by me and certain other scholars and musers in the field, after much thought and heated consultation, as really a form of chewing tobacco, and I'll deal with that at length when I get to that topic. Dry snuff, the true light brown powder cherished by many generations of rural southerners, white, black, male, female, young, old, is found on the shelves of country and small town stores in little cylindrical friction top cans, fine when empty for storing small childhood treasures and in larger glass containers. It's one of two main sorts, sweet and salty, and though, as is well known, tradition is going to hell in a handbasket these days, Mild sweet snuff used to be favored chiefly by women and beginners, while adult males leaned on the stronger salty kind with vehement loyalty to one brand or another. Men who dip are still fairly common in rural Texas, especially in the eastern parts. The habit is a powerful one, it said, much harder to break than cigarettes. But the greater part of them, an observer and merely tentative dipper thinks to discern, are of those generations that did their growing up before the Second World War. For though of late there has been a solid increase in tobacco chewing, younger recruits have not been flocking to the banner of snuff, which sadly lacks social cachet. 
In fact, in modern times, snuff has been held in lower esteem by what my mother used to call nice people than any other form of tobacco use. Why this should be so is a bit moot, though not very. In some part, I suspect it's based on an old urban tendency to look down on specifically rural ways and partly, too, on a spookiness about their origins in many ex-rural townsmen who were trying hard to be nice themselves. But it would be very rash to get over-sociological about all this and to gloss over the hard central fact, lamentable but known to all with eyes, that an occasional carefree dipper can be a truly gross and repellent sight. Slogans, as we wearily know, are the soul of salesmanship, and the older generation of advertising men used to recite to each other one example which had brought great success to, I believe, a young cigar company touting the superiority of its machine-made product over the traditional handcrafted sort stuck together with human saliva. Spit is a horrid word. It's widely considered to be a fairly horrid substance as well, especially when brown. You can dip or chew with little if any concomitant expectoration, as many secret users do, by simply tucking a small pinch of snuff or a pea-sized lump of tobacco between your cheek and lower gum. But for many other addicts, foolhardy satisfaction demands larger quantities than that. And while even a fair-sized chew of tobacco will settle down after a time and require no further spitting, snuff is unfortunately different. Its finely particulate consistency means that a real wad steadily releases into the mouth a flow of potent juice that nobody without a ceramic stomach can swallow. Hence, a periodic patui is inevitable, or more accurately with snuff, a thin and dark amber squirt. Some dippers who work outdoors alone or in masculine company where niceties are not crucial can pack in heroic amounts at a time and are often what is known as front lippers, insouciant fellows who don't bother to tongue their load around at the side but leave it where it went in. Their frequent aspect, distended and blackened lower lip, jaw-wagging speech and difficulty in shaping certain sounds, Perhaps a trail of dried juice running down into stubble from one corner of the mouth has been known upon sudden confrontation to set strong women screaming. Women, strong or weak, accounted for a good part of the snuff consumed in Texas and elsewhere until not too long ago. But female dippers were dwindling in number even when I was young, and in the present degenerate days when sexiness up to the age of 75 or so is an apparent common aim, the practice seems to be confined mainly to a few ancient and unreconstructedly country types. How sexy it may have been considered in its heyday, I have no way of knowing, but some aging ladies whom I remember from long ago did manage to make it seem dainty taking delicate quantities of the sovereign powder off a little brush made from a twig of dogwood or peach or mesquite or some other fibrous, pleasantly flavored plant. Even using this method, though, others were not all that ladylike. And if we seek objective opinions, we find that alien males have nearly always seen the habit as unattractive, albeit somewhat monstrously fascinating, as witnessed the epistolary observations of a young Yankee soldier stationed in North Carolina in 1861, an ancestor of my wife's. He wrote, 
There are a number of young girls about the island, some of whom are very good-looking, but they spoil it all by indulging in the nasty habit of chewing snuff. The modus operandi is as follows. They get a piece of sweet briar wood, chew the end until it is after the style of a paintbrush, then dip in snuff and swab all over the mouth and lips, which gives them the appearance of a lot of dirty children who have been eating molasses candy. So much for the style of Hatteras Bells. No danger of my getting spliced here. Maybe, therefore, it is in part to snuff that we owe the renown and often-sung purity of southern womanhood. Not long ago, a rather petite and pretty blonde girl dressed in jeans and a flowered blouse came to our place in a pickup to inquire about buying some dairy goats. Though we had sold off all our Nubians some time before, interest in goats is a brotherhood, and she and I talked for quite a while about different breeds and their quirks and qualities. From time to time as we spoke, she turned her head aside and spat into the grass so quietly and unobtrusively that I wouldn't have known what she was up to if I hadn't been a long-time student of such things. I didn't ask or comment, but I would have bet right there that she had derived the habit from a grandmother or great-grandmother of the old school who knew well the rustic brown solace of snuff and had shared her knowledge down the generations. My heart swelled up within me. Tradition, praise the Lord, is not entirely dead. And that brings us to chapter 16. John Graves entitled this one, Tobacco Without Smoke, Chewers. While the mastication of tobacco has never, to my knowledge, been thought very socially suave, as, for instance, taking snuff by the nose once was, in our part of the world it is only during the past 40 years or so that it has come to be viewed with much opprobrium, at any rate among men. In my rather distant youth in Fort Worth, not exactly the fountainhead of national taste, but a fair-sized city even then, ruled by a relatively solid set of southern-western mores, courtrooms and other public places had plenty of gleaming brass cuspidors about for the benefit of chewers, and so did a good many private offices and waiting rooms. For despite the reigning popularity of cigarettes and cigars, Chewing held a long-established toehold in the masculine realms of the day, even at respectable levels. Certain lawyers in particular whom I remember had fondness for the quid, as did some judges who rose from the legal ranks and occasionally sank back into them again when the pointing finger of electoral fortune swung elsewhere. But I knew doctors who partook also, though probably not in their offices, and oil men who had picked up the habit on rigs where smoking was unwise, and a host of skilled job holders of various sorts. Streetcar operators, for some reason, seemed to be chewers to a man and were furnished with a little brass trapdoor at their feet through which they spat between the tracks as their trolley sped and swayed along. By and large, storekeepers refrained, at least while at work, for they had to deal with customers of both sexes and one of the unwritten rules about a certain social line had always been you didn't chew tobacco openly around ladies. Most ladies, for their part, whether urban or rural, were willing enough to let out of sight be out of mind, and if they made any reference at all to the practice, it was with some moo of indulgent distaste. 
but some hated it consumingly, and woe was the chewer who married one of these unless he was a 33rd degree master of circumspection. A case in point, my maternal grandfather, a gentle agricultural immigrant in the Texas prairie from South Carolina, who, like many of his generation, was permanently a bit perplexed, I believe, by the lingering shock of the war and Reconstruction during which he had grown up. He had not a grain of circumspection in him or any other vices that I know of except a solid love for Brown's mule plug tobacco, which was his bulwark. Beset on this account by not only a strong Baptist wife, but two proper married city-dwelling daughters as well, when one or both of the daughters came back for a weekend visit to back up his spouse's excoriations, he would often seek refuge in his box-hive apiary below the house where none of these females cared to go. And even though I was quite young when he died, I can recall the good feel of sitting out there with him enveloped in the hum of laboring German black bees as he nursed a friendly quid to calm his henpecked nerves and whittled profiled human figures for me out of slats of fruitwood pine. It is a great solacer of the chew, comparable in smoking to an aged and well-loved pipe. One old rancher I know, who uses no tobacco himself, recollects that in time of drought or other trouble, his bearded father would get up at one or two in the morning and go to the ranch house's dark living room to sit close by the dead fireplace, chewing tobacco, sorting out his worries, spitting from time to time into the ashes, and by dawn, ending up fairly cheerful. Such slow and ruminative use of nicotine has little in common with the fury of a tense cigarette smoker's puffing. It calms and gives perspective, and to those of us who like it with or without our lady's acquiescence, one of nature's true boons. It is pleasant to be able to report that this noble practice seems to have had a mild renaissance in the past few years, that is to say among middle-class sorts, for with laborers and countrymen it never lost its vogue. If, as the old cigar ad said, spit is a horrid word, our Surgeon General's intimation that cigarettes may be a worse one has set reflective or spooked smokers to thinking in other directions. The pipe and the cigar were given much higher marks than the cigarette by the said SG, and many of them have changed over to them. But the fact is, these statistics were derived from lifelong devotees of pipes and cigars who seldom inhale smoke, whereas cigarette smokers who switch nearly always do, so that they're probably getting more tar and other abominations in their lungs now than they did from the filtered cigarettes they gave up. Logic might suggest flat abandonment of the weed, but logic is a bit mathematical for many of us nicotine heads, and so we explore other avenues that tradition offers. Though snuff has its points, the nasal mode of taking it in is a bit alien and queer, and the old southern way of folding it into the lip has very unfortunate connotations roundabout, as we have seen based on equally unfortunate reality. This leaves the quid whose connotations in truth are not all that glorious, either among moderns, but which can be unobtrusive if used prudently, and does possess for us older conservative types the virtue of having once been acceptable in fairly polite male circles, even if it does require a little spitting to get rid of excess juice. In female circles, I have a hard time believing it will ever have much appeal, either as something to do or as a spectator sport, 
though of course I may be hidebound in this view. In topsy-turvy times, nearly anything can happen, and conceivably the sexist monopoly heretofore enjoyed by men in the realm of chewing tobacco may sooner or later tempt some feminists into joining us as we munch. If so, they might consider adopting as a patron saint that historic Parker County lady, a Mrs. Rippy, who once faced down some raiding Comanches by fishing out a plug and biting off a hunk while she cursed and glared at them. Chewing tobacco comes in three main forms these days, the best known of which is the kind Mrs. Rippy used, a dark, compressed brick enclosed in a wrapper of light brown leaf. Nearly all of the numerous brands of plug, each with its hook supporters, are impregnated to some degree with molasses for flavor and cohesiveness. In the so-called natural leaf sorts, this admixture is rather light, but in a good many of the others, it's heavy enough to give the tobacco a sticky texture and candy sweetness in the mouth, and some of the other attributes of candy, too. A dentist with a rural and small-town practice once told me he could spot many chewers easily, not by stains, for, contrary to slanderous rumor, chewing Sully's teeth less than smoking does if the chewer brushes daily, but by where their cavities occurred. A real quid man with a taste for sweet tobacco would have most of his caries in a clump on the outside of his lower molars, right hand or left, depending on where he usually kept his sugared chew. Plug tobacco is compact and easily hidden on the person, and since it expands somewhat in the mouth, a small bit can give a fair satisfaction without a great deal of mulling about and consequent spitting. Therefore, it's rather well-suited to the purposes of sub rosa indoor users who are denied access to cuspidors these days and have to search about for potted plants or men's rooms if their chew gets unruly in its production of strong fluids. To use plug, though, you ought to like it, and some people find this hard. I've heard that when the habit had more standing, a few premium brands of superb flavor were available at high prices, some of them made from the true Havana leaf, but these are different times, and many kinds now have a pluggy edge of rancidity in their taste that not all chewers admire. A seldom-seen variation on the plug is the old-fashioned twist, usually made by growers out of their own leaf by forming it when damp into a tight spiral rope, which is then double back and retwisted on itself. Twist can be unbelievably strong. Some that I ordered in quantity from Tennessee a couple of years ago, fire-cured stuff, turned out to be so imperious that I ended up feeding it bit by bit to my goats, who thought it gourmet fare. I need to add that this was not sadism on my part, for not only do goats like tobacco, but it also does them good. In the days before modern veterinary antihelminthics made an appearance, it was the drug of choice for worming them. Human chewers have a generally heartening belief, probably valid, that the habit will keep them from getting worms, though a small, still voice wonders how much of an advantage this is in a society that has largely vanquished such parasites. A second main form of chew is what used to be known as scrap, a homely term that's likely been euphemized into something else by now, though if so, I haven't heard what. Consisting of coarse, usually syrup shreds, it comes packed in foil-lined pouches and on grocery store shelves, the main brands, Beechnut, Redman, Mail Pouch, and so forth, are a familiar sight. So elsewhere are the hugely lumped cheek and the hearty expectoration characteristic of most of its users. 
It's strangely hard to take a little bitty wad of scrap and just tuck it away for nursing. A large dangling three-finger pinch is the rule, and after you've draped it into your mouth, you have to more or less bail it with your tongue and side teeth. In the parlance of chewers, it works you to death, demanding to be rolled around and gnawed. In consequence, those who favor it tend to be either outdoor workers or types who are proud of their habit's masculinity and like to exhibit it, baseball players, rodeo cowboys and such, along with fans who admire them. Another rodeo cowboy and athlete, however, the amiable Walt Garrison, at least he seems to be amiable enough in the TV commercials, has lately been hitting a hard promotional lick for a very popular third form of oral tobacco that is the least showy of all, or can be. This is the granulated wet kind sold in the cylindrical wax boxes with tin lids, known in the Midwest and to some extent down here as snus, from, I understand, the Danish-Swedish word for snuff, which indicates its ultimate geographic origin and has a bearing on controversy concerning what the substance really is. The United States Tobacco Company, which manufactures all the brands of it I've seen, has muddied the question rather thoroughly. Its original stout Swedish salty version called Copenhagen is labeled forthrightly snuff on the box, but of three subsequent products flavored with wintergreen, mint, and raspberry, one is described as chewing tobacco, the other two as smokeless tobacco. Such skilled somatic footwork almost certainly has to do with the snuff's American reputation, which, as we have noted before, is especially poor in urban reaches of the once snuff-happy Southland. The same reputation, though, appears to be why certain users maintain hotly that snus is snuff. Some of its burgeoning popularity, undoubtedly in part because of Walt Garrison's rugged grin, has been among youths of goat roping and or footballing propensities who carry it in jeans hip pockets where the container's round shape is unmistakable, or sometimes even flaunted in special pouches hanging from their belts. Though many of them, maybe most, come from the urban or small-town middle class, the image they yearn to project is anything but bourgeois, and having described that in bourgeois eyes snuff is very tasty, they're vehement in insisting what they use is snuff, and what they do is dip it. Occasional bumper stickers on pickup trucks underline that point. In fairness, I haven't heard our amiable and prosperous friend Walt put things that way, he calls the stuff merely tobacco, and wintergreen skull is his flavor. The trouble is that anyone who has put in time around real dippers knows that the only material that deserves to be called snuff is the true, the blissful, the sometimes consummately repulsive brown powder of our southern heritage. In these terms, the kids' pretensions are rather pathetic. For pure horribleness, they couldn't start to compete with even a medium-nasty front-lipper of Levi, Garrett, or Rooster, try as hard as they might. For their ammunition is just not up to the job. It compacts readily into a manageable wad, settles well for long nursing, and doesn't keep sending its effluvium all over the mouth to encourage wild, dark salivation. In short, it may be a hybrid form, but it acts very comfortably like chewing tobacco. Snus sneaked in on Texas at some point, not being traditional here. 
As a long-hallowed institution up north, it must have entered this region before the Second World War, when I first saw it in use among Midwestern farm boys in the service, but if so, it hadn't made enough of a dent in the market to become well-known. During one period or another, it gained acceptance in the oil patch, and lately it's been gaining the same thing widely elsewhere, for the reasons given above and for other related ones that are clear enough. A little of it goes a long way, both in kick and in time, and unless you take on too much, you seldom have to offend anyone's sensibilities by spitting after it's well established in your cheek. It makes the best secret you available, and that's what a surprising varied lot of men are looking for just now. Two or three years ago, I was talking with a banker at his vice presidential desk, he is an urbane sort, but has been around, having begun his working life as an oil field roustabout in the North Texas Red Rolling Plains. We had arrived at an ever-absorbing subject, the pains of stopping smoking, when he hesitated, grinned broadly, reached into the side pocket of his tailored sharkskin coat, and briefly flashed a round box of Copenhagen. The hell with cigarettes, he said. This is all I need. I'm right back where I started out. In our next episode of From a Limestone Ledge, we're going to shift away from deep dives into various forms of smokeless tobacco, which for some of you might have triggered your gag reflex, and delve instead into the question of whether country folk can truly be their own sole kings on their own sole ground. Many of them feel they're being squeezed in a vice by outside forces, hunters, pleasure seekers, land use regulations, and ecological concerns. You're hearing this work by John Graves on the Bookshelf, a production of Spokane Public Radio, for which Vern Wyndham is executive producer. I'm Tom Bacon. 